Hello, this is Cleo Pascal. Welcome to Chatham House's Strategic Perspectives on the Indo-Pacific podcast. In this series, we're talking about how different strategic communities in different countries look at what's going on in the Indo-Pacific. We're in Washington today, thanks to our partner, the East-West Center in D.C. It's September 11th, 2019, and this morning there were remembrance ceremonies in the city and across the country to mark the anniversary of the terrible attack in 2001. We just held a brainstorming roundtable in East-West Center's offices with American strategic and policy experts about what they think might happen in the Indo-Pacific out to 2024. And now we're very lucky to have three excellent experts to talk us through the topic. First, we have Dr. Satu LeMay, who's director here at the East-West Center in DC. He and his great team helped us to organize the workshop. Then we're talking to Ambassador Stephen McGann. He was the U.S. Ambassador to Tonga, Fiji, Nauru, Kiribati, Tuvalu. He was Chargé d'Affaires at the U.S. Embassy in Timor-Leste, and he was Vice Chancellor of the College of International Security Affairs at the National Defense University. He's the founder of the Stevenson Group. Finally, we'll be talking to Richard Fontaine, who's Chief Executive Officer of the Center for New American Security. Before that, he worked at the State Department, the National Security Council, and the Senate Foreign Affairs Committee. So please settle in as we go to the Indo-Pacific via Washington. Hi, this is Cleo Pascal from Chatham House, and I'm here with... Dr. Satu LeMay of the East-West Center in Washington. So we're talking a little bit about the Indo-Pacific and how it might change out to 2024. I know this is something you've been thinking a lot about. So where are some of the inflection points going forward, things that could deviate it in a good direction for the U.S. or a problematic direction for the U.S.? That's a really big topic. I think there are probably two or three really big things. One is, of course, the trajectory on the U.S.-China relationship and where that goes. We're in this so-called strategic competition phase, but does that get more solidified and move more towards confrontation or more of a managed relationship? I think that will be a big variable in our inflection point as we go forward in the next three, four years. The second, of course, more immediate and really a domestic issue is where the U.S. elections go. Who wins the election? Does he or she as president of the United States take us in a different direction? Even if the current administrations come back, do they tack differently in the second term? If a new person comes from the Democratic Party, will he or she want to persist in some of these policies? The current debate sort of thinking on China is that the establishment and the bureaucratic and policy establishment are locked into a confrontational or, if you will, a strategic competition phase with China. But there's increasing evidence from public opinion polling and analysis that maybe the public is not fully along with that. So how will they mediate those differences? So that's the second issue. The third issue is just how much hedging does the region do? And in particular, what do our allies and partners do? And the key allies, of course, are Japan, Korea, Australia, uh, to some extent, of course, the Philippines and Thailand, but also really important partners like Singapore, which has made some statements recently in the Shangri-La Dialogue. Where does India go? So those I would identify as the three key variables that I'm watching. We just held a workshop here at the East-West Center. Would you like to describe a little bit about what the East-West Center does? Sure. The East-West Center was established by the United States Congress. It's authorized by the United States Congress to promote collaborative education exchange and research between Americans and Asians. We are not a security and defense organization per se. We cover topics of political economy, 
domestic politics in the region and in the United States, environmental issues, social issues, and uh, East, Western, and Washington, given its location, very heavily privileges the foreign policy, security, defense, and policy relevant sides of the house. And we bring together scholars, we put out analytical publications, we create innovative resources such as the Asia Matters for America initiative, uh, a website that tracks U.S.-Asia relations at the national, state, and local level. We also have a new site with the National Committee on North Korea that maps North Korea's external relations. So we do a lot of operating in that space and then work very closely with our congressional staff program on Asia and other missions. Were there any things that jumped out at you as a result of the workshop? Any comments that made you go, aha, right, I have to think about that? I think the biggest takeaway from, for me from this very, very interesting and worthwhile day looking at major countries, including those sort of not traditionally seen as part of the region, UK, France, Japan, India, Pacific Islands, I think the really big takeaway is how much uncertainty and fluidity. Uh, I think one of the participants commented very early in the day that not since the end of World War II. I'm still playing with that concept because, because there have been at least two other inflection points in America's relations with East Asia. Inflection point one was after 1975 in the Vietnam War, where the United States was seen to be, quote, retreating or reducing its presence, Guam Doctrine, somewhat off mainland Southeast Asia. And that lasted, you know, quite a while. One could make a very reasonable and articulate case that that lasted from 75 to 2001. Obviously, this doesn't mean we didn't have relations in the region or we were isolationist or anything of the kind. What it means is if you're looking for historical parallels to the current era, I would argue that 75 to roughly 2001 when the 9-11 attack happened, you could make the case. And some extent, the end of the Cold War is embedded in that period, too, because from 91 onwards, the U.S. was seen as less relevant or less active in the region. You'll recall that when we were thrown out of the bases in the Philippines, Singapore picked up the slack in order to keep us engaged in the region. And people in the region are now debating, is the U.S. turning inward? Is it really committed? How much does it want to do? There is, of course, concern about being in strategic competition with China because they'll have to choose. But there's also concern that there might not be strategic competition with China, which is one of the drivers of U.S. engagement in the region, not the only, but one of them. So I think this uncertainty, fluidity, and China to me is no longer the X variable in the equation. The United States is the X variable in the region. It's what the U.S. chooses to do or not do that will fundamentally decide the future fate of the security, strategic, economic environment in the Indo-Pacific. There have been quite a few documents put out by the U.S. government about the importance of the Indo-Pacific and the Indo-Pacific strategy. Do you see on the ground representation of that? Yeah, this is kind of a way of asking, I suppose, Cleo, whether the rebalance ever materialized. And I have called it uh, pivot interruptus, which is essentially the notion that the United States turned towards East Asia and the Pacific beginning, which people now forget, in 2001. For those who don't remember, 
the Quadrennial Defense Review of the George W. Bush administration was issued, public version was issued on the 10th of September, 2001. On the 11th of September, this tragic date in American history, I would just mind that that document turning our attentions to East Asia. In fact, a very interesting strategic concept called the East Asian Littoral, running from the Sea of Japan to the Bay of Bengal, was articulated in that document. And with the 9-11 attacks the next morning, indeed that night, that strategic document guiding a pivot to Asia was less relevant. It was picked up again by President Obama and his team in 2008, and the criticism was that it never really led to on-the-ground material structural increases. So hence, it was interrupted. It was interrupted in 2001, interrupted in between 2008 and 2016, and then the Indo-Pacific strategy, free and open Indo-Pacific strategy of the Trump administration was articulated in 2017. So now the question is, how does it coexist with the America First and those elements of the strategy? So we're again at a point, if you will, as I said, that the U.S. is the critical variable, unknown variable here in terms of the trend line in the region. So looking forward to 2024, what would be a positive outcome in the Indo-Pacific and what would be a negative outcome in the Indo-Pacific from a U.S. perspective? From a U.S. perspective, I don't speak for the U.S. I'm not a U.S. government official. Um, as this nonpartisan institution and as an analyst myself, I guess I would see three positive outcomes for the United States. First is a very close and strong alignment between our principal allies and our partners in the region about a combination of security defense ties on the one hand and close economic ties, on both bilateral and, and maybe going beyond bilateral, including the global trading system. Second, maybe this is too much to hope for, but perhaps a way to dock onto or rehabilitate the abandoned TPP, which I consider to be critical for maintaining some of the high standards and integration elements with key partners in the region. And third, I think that we are in an era where our Asian partners, whether they be allies or partners or friends, take stock of the American need for them to do more too. So while they may complain that China is providing infrastructure, it's incumbent, I think, upon our friends in Asia to create the kinds of environment that will be attractive to American private sector companies to invest in infrastructure. It can't simply be, and it's not going to be, an American handout of infrastructure, but creating the rules, creating the norms, creating the transparency, creating the regulatory and financial structures that will allow us to leverage U.S. official aid official assistance to American private sector so that they'll say, yes, I think I will build a bridge in this country in the Indo-Pacific. So I think it's incumbent not only that the U.S. do certain things, but I think it's also important that our colleagues in Indo-Pacific countries think about how they can, quote, keep America rooted in the region, just as Singapore did by building a strategic framework after we lost Subic Bay and Clark Air Force Base. What does a, a less positive outcome in 2024 look like? Well, I think a less positive income is further hedging by our allies and partners with a lack of confidence that the U.S. is willing and able to play the role. 
Second, I think uh, increasing uh, Chinese assertiveness and aggressiveness that they have displayed at times, particularly on issues like the South China Sea. And thirdly, I think it will be harmful to long-term American willingness and ability to stay in the region if the region is seen as economically unopen to the United States and that conditions in the region, both in human rights and democracy terms, are not sufficient to attract American support. That is the kind of supply side for being engaged. I mean, one of the drivers for U.S. being engaged not only is to keep its preeminence, but also to get material gains and ideational gains from good governance, human rights, democracy, transparency, anti-corruption and protection of civil liberties. That will make it an attractive region for Americans to be engaged with. So I think those would be some of the things I have as concerns. This is Cleo Pascal from Chatham House, and I'm here with... Stephen McGann. And Ambassador McGann, you've been very active in the Pacific Islands for a long time. Could you describe a little bit about your background in the region? That's right. Well, I've been a career Foreign Service officer for over 37 years, retired in 2016, but... I spent close to one third of my career in the Pacific. My last overseas assignment, I was United States Ambassador to Fiji, Kiribati, Nauru, the Kingdom of Tonga and Tuvalu. I also was responsible for a period of time of operating our embassy in Dili, Timor-Leste, served in Australia, um, as well as being Director of the Office for Australia, New Zealand Pacific Island Affairs, and was part of the first team to be assigned to the American Institute in Taiwan in 1979. So I've had a a fair amount of experience in the Pacific, and I should also mention that in the late 80s, early 90s, I was one of the team that was responsible for the ban on global drift net fishing of the United Nations. So it's been quite an experience. Have you seen much change in the U.S. attitude towards the Pacific over the last five to ten years? I think if we go back as far as 10 years and look at what happened in 2007. 2007, uh, the United States began what was called the Year of the Pacific. It was a time in which we started looking anew at our relationships with the Pacific Island countries and decided it was important for us to begin to make policy choices based on what our overall strategic interests in the Pacific were, uh, not necessarily interests that were just in opposition to any one country, particularly China, but in fact, an approach that was based on our overall strategic interests. Since 2007, we've seen uh, the expansion of the U.S. presence grow. Uh, We transformed our embassy in Suva, Fiji into a regional hub post. Now we see that we're increasing the size of our embassy in Port Moresby. So there has been a steady, steady Uh, growth in our relationship. Uh, I might add one of our more important programs was the Shipwriters Agreement Program, uh, which was based on fisheries protection, in which now nine Pacific Island countries are covered. So we have been steadily looking at ways over the past decade in which we can improve the relationship. I think one of the key areas now would be our focus on humanitarian assistance and disaster response, particularly given the negative impacts of climate change. The United States has played a key role in response to cyclones in the region, uh, as well as earthquakes off the shore of the Solomon Islands. So our engagement has been steadily increasing. 
So three of the five Five Eyes countries are overlapping in the Pacific region. So how is that, as the Indo-Pacific becomes a, a more contested zone or a zone of interest for more countries and the U.S. is re-engaging, how is the relationship between the U.S., Australia, and New Zealand evolving in the region? Well, I think we have to look at that relationship not necessarily as a Five Eyes relationship. We're all aware of, of the fact that the importance of the ANZUS Treaty between the United States, Australia, and New Zealand was at its inception. Obviously, uh, there have been slight changes into how that treaty is implemented, but at the same time, there's been a resuscitation of the relationship with New Zealand. So I think we can consider that the ANZUS Treaty has remained a treaty in force, and although New Zealand is not an ally, it's still a partner country, and uh, that has been an important part of our engagement in the region. But I think we also have to look at our relationship with France. Uh, France has works closely with the United States as well as Australia and New Zealand when it comes to maritime security in the region. We've also been highly supportive of the, the return of the United Kingdom to the region. So it's not just a matter of looking at our traditional uh, relationships with Australia and New Zealand, but looking at how we've grown uh, and developed other partners in the region. Including directly bilateral with the Pacific Islands? Especially bilateral with the Pacific Islands. I think we tend to overlook the fact that the United States was a charter member of the Secretary of the Pacific Community, one of the key organizations that helped create the regional architecture of the Pacific. Uh, we're also a charter member of the Fisheries Forum Agency. So I think now the United States, particularly in the status as an observer to the Civil Island Forum, is looking at ways, or should look at ways, in which we can strengthen regional architecture. Because strengthening regional architecture will probably help the United States achieve its overall strategic interest in the region, while at the same time providing the type of multilateral assistance and coordination to the region that's necessary for future development uh, in the area. From the outside, a lot of the coverage or interest in the Pacific Islands seems to have been spurred on by the China question in the Pacific. How do you see that manifesting on the ground, and how can that be integrated into U.S. policies going forward? I think when it comes to China, we have to be careful of not overstating the importance of China to the region. And at the same time, understating what China's intentions are. We have to be clear on one thing, that the Chinese have made it clear that its number one priority in the Pacific has still been the competition for diplomatic recognition with Taiwan. Right? Although China supported the earlier 6 plus 6 resolution of diplomatic recognition, they haven't stopped. You mean six countries and six countries. That's right. Yeah. All right. And so what we found is that Chinese resources in the region are still geared toward that one goal of undermining Taiwan's diplomatic status in the region. As a result, we've seen China pour more resources uh, into the area. We've seen Pacific Island countries accept them, sometimes and often to their detriment, all right? uh, loans that they can't pay back, uh, relationships that, uh, particularly when it comes to the movement of Chinese immigrants throughout the region and the impact that's had on local economies. 
both positive and negative. And several island countries have found that they've often bought off more they can shoot with the China relationship. And so that it's important for us to identify where we can help Pacific Island countries break that dependence that they probably started unknowingly with China, and at the same time look at that break not as a way of opposition to China, but a positive impact on the economies and democratic structures within those countries. Can you describe a little bit the compact of free association relationship, what it is and where it might be heading? This takes us back to uh, the end of World War II, in which essentially the United States took over sponsorship of the Marshall Islands, Micronesia, and Palau after winning them away from Japan. Uh, Mind you, Kiribati actually had the opportunity of being the fourth freely associated state, but we decided at a time to return the Gilbert Islands to the United Kingdom. That said, and if we fast forward to the 1970s, when there was a move for decolonization worldwide, it just wasn't Pacific, the United States decided that it was important to grant independence to those territories. All right, That was done, but what we also did was allowed for them to be independent countries, to give them ongoing financial support, also to, while we maintained close coordination and collaboration on foreign policy and defense issues, we also granted the right of citizens of the freely associated states to immigrate to the United States without passports, all right, just uh, by virtue of, of their being citizens of the freely associated states and to work in the United States. That was essentially uh, what the compact comprises. It has been operated in the United States through the Department of the Interior, not through the Department of State. That has its pluses and minuses, but it's still proven to be a strong relationship. And even now, as we're looking to renegotiate what the compact implements, that doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to break the compacts themselves, that the relationship with the freely associated states will continue. All of those countries are quite far north in the northern part of the Pacific, an increasingly contested zone strategically. Is there a strategic consideration to what the future relationship might be between the U.S. and the freely associated states? I'm always careful of overstating what that strategic relationship might be. I think it's, it's clear that the United States has economic interests uh, in the region, which are separate from whatever strategic competition it may have with China. The United States sees the fisheries protection as an important part of the relationship, for example. So I think we would be doing a bit of detriment to the freely associated states if we just saw the relationship in strategic terms. Again, the the relationship is longstanding. All parties have been satisfied with the direction in which the relationship has, has, has emerged has given the freely associated states more than a modicum of independence. At the same time, there are still unresolved issues. Clearly, uh, in the Marshall Islands, uh, there's a question of the aftermath of nuclear testing and those Marshallese who had to leave Bikini Island. That's still an outstanding issue that has to be resolved. At the same time, 
you know, we've continued to have strong ties with Micronesia uh, as well as Palau. And you also have to see the freely associated states in the context of the other territories that the United States has in the Northern Pacific, Guam, uh, Saipan, all right? So it's, it's part of a much bigger picture. And I think we tend to, to forget that those Micronesians who live in freely associated states in American territories also constituted a major portion of those allied countries who contributed soldiers to various uh, U.S. operations in Iraq and Afghanistan. They did this by virtue of the fact that as citizens associated with the United States, they could join the U.S. Armed Forces. It wasn't necessarily a treaty relationship, but again, it's a, a way of not overlooking the contribution that the people of uh, Micronesia have made in support of the United States. So taking a, an even bigger focus, out to 2024 in the Indo-Pacific, what would be a positive outcome for you by then, and what would be a negative outcome for you, and how can we navigate that? I think a positive outcome would be for the United States to promote policies in the Pacific that meet the interests of the people of the region, as well as our overarching goals. That's the first thing. Secondly, I think the United States has to look at ways in which it could help support and strengthen the regional architecture of the region. I think that it's important for us to look at ways in which our bilateral assistance to Pacific Island countries can be augmented by creating new regional frameworks that allow Pacific Island countries to better cooperate with each other, better coordinate to prevent redundancy, and at the same time, a stronger regional framework would allow our overarching interests, both as the United States, along with its regional partners and the Pacific Island countries, to be better coordinated. And a negative outcome? And how do we avoid it? The negative outcome, of course, was not to follow my advice. (laughs) (laughs) And to admit strengthening this regional architecture, that would be a negative outcome. But most importantly, I, I think we have to look at ways in which the United States can be most helpful through strengthening regional architecture. It's not just as a bulwark against incursion by other countries in the Pacific, but if we look at some of the issues that we have to address, we have to address the negative impacts of climate change. The fact that humanitarian assistance and disaster response is going to be extremely important in the region, and it's a security role that the United States can play. We also have to look at the fact that the Pacific Island economies still aren't growing fast enough and that we have to seriously deal with the fact of how we can help them grow. Migration is going to be an important part of that. Uh, We already have, with the freely associated states, uh, the ability to work in the United States. We may have to look under a new regional structure in which Pacific Islanders could work in the United States as well as Australia, New Zealand. Uh, but if we if we really look at it, that Pacific Islanders have a strong presence in the United States in Southern California, Northern California as well, Arkansas, Utah, I believe also Minneapolis. I mean, so Pacific Island, uh, Islanders are in the United States now. But we have to look at the fact that since repatriation of earnings overseas makes up close to 33% of the GDP, of Pacific Island countries and their economies 
internally are not expanding, that's something we have to look at. And by looking at that in a clear-eyed way, we can also prevent some of the, I'll call it social ailments that are affecting Pacific Island countries right now. Hi, this is Cleo Pascal from Chatham House, and I'm here with Richard Fontaine. I'm the Chief Executive Officer of the Center for New American Security in Washington. And we're going to talk about the Indo-Pacific out to 2024. So what do you think are some of the biggest potential inflection points for the U.S. looking out for the next five years in the region? Well, certainly we'll have a big inflection point next year when the American people choose the same or a different president. Uh, and uh, I think the difference between a second Trump term and a term of a, of a yet-to-be-known Democratic nominee will take the country in very different directions and therefore take the American position in the Indo-Pacific and those countries' reaction to it in different directions. There's also, of course, other things more structural, the Chinese economy and whether growth continues to slow there, how the Chinese respond to it, even things like the disposition of what happens in Hong Kong and, and the regional response to it if there's a crackdown, for example. So there's there's a number of things going on. And then you look at popular opinion in, among the United States and its allies and its partners and, 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 and what they're willing to support in terms of you know, standing up to China and what that actually means versus you know, doing business with China and, and what that means. So th there's a number of things. There's no shortage of, I guess, inflection points, you could say. And how about are the relationships with allies, for example, the UK post-Brexit? Is that going to affect anything in the region? I think the alliance with the UK post-Brexit, well, certainly economically, I think the United States might actually be closer to the UK post-Brexit simply because we'll be looking for non-continental trade partners and investment partners. But I don't see the UK as a major player in the Indo-Pacific. You know, they do some things here and there, but you know, their, their capacity is not great in the region. The other alliances the United States has there are far more consequential. So Japan being the foremost in the North and Australia and the South among the five treaty allies the United States has in East Asia. And there you're seeing a strengthening not only of the U.S. alliance with each of those countries, but you're also seeing a strengthening of their military posture. And you're seeing them uh, reach out to new non-allied partners, so Japanese security linkages with India and Indonesia and the Philippines and Vietnam and Australia itself, Australia doing the same kind of thing. And this interesting kind of web of security ties is emerging in the region, which is genuinely new over the past decade or so. There's been a lot of discussion about the Indo-Pacific in the U.S., for example, with the Indo-Pacific Defense Strategy Report. Is that reflected on the ground? To some degree, it is reflected on the ground, but... The real question is, where do you look to tell where the United States is headed? Do you look at documents like that or the national defense strategy or the national security strategy, which put huge emphasis on the importance of the Indo-Pacific and a priority on that? Or do you look at what's happening on the ground in terms of where resources are deployed, where diplomatic attention is, is being paid? Or do you look at what the president and the secretary of state and others say, uh, which actually tends to be far less focused on the Indo-Pacific. I recall that right after the national security strategy was issued, 
which emphasized the importance of great power competition and, and the Indo-Pacific region. The president gave his State of the Union address a week or two later, and he talked about terrorism and Iran and North Korea and all these other things, and that barely touched China other than in an, in an economic competition sense. And so the answer today to where do you look to find out what's really going on in American policy and approaches, yes, all of those things, and you try to make the best out of that mosaic of, of words and activities. Is the trade war likely to continue? I think it's likely to continue certainly until closer to the presidential election. I mean, this appears to be driven mostly by the president's view that this is a good political issue for him to be able to say that the Democrats are weak on China and he is strong, the Democrats get bad deals, he'll get a good deal. That position only lasts as long as there's no deal. Once there is an actual deal, then you start sort of shooting at it. It's also an arrow in the quiver of the president if the economy continues to decline ahead of the election. You know, each time he says something encouraging about a disposition or resolution to to the China trade war, the markets go up, confidence increases. So given that he doesn't have the fiscal stimulus available anymore because they already cut taxes, we already increased spending, he doesn't control the Fed. If we start to go in recession that's going to coincide with election day, the major arrow left in the quiver is to strike a deal with China and push confidence back in into the markets and then try to push up our economic numbers that way. But that's a domestic politically driven um, impulse, not one focused very much on you know, what are the specifics of this deal or that deal or some other deal? From a U.S. perspective, what does a positive Indo-Pacific outcome in 2024 look like and what's a negative one? Well, I would say a positive one is one where the United States continues to stay engaged, where the countries of the region generally enjoy foreign policy independence and an ability to choose their alliances and partnerships where the democratic countries of the region do not face external autocratic intervention by China or any other country for that matter, that there's robust trade, that there's freedom of navigation, you know, a continuation in many ways of what the rules-based regional order has allowed Asia to succeed into over a number of decades. You know, you can easily imagine the converse where China increasingly enjoys a veto over some aspects of countries in the region's foreign policy where it increasingly meddles in the democratic politics and democratic exercise of countries in the region, where it is harder to enjoy freedom of navigation given Chinese claims and ability to assert those claims in the region and so forth. And that's the kind of outcome that we should have an interest in trying to avoid if we can, all, if we can at all. How can we? Well, there's a number of answers to that question. I think that on the military side, you know, increasing the U.S. presence and strength in the region, but critically linking that to other allies and new partners that are growing stronger in their own right is the major part of the answer there. And then also changing the way we think about warfare, not because we want a war with China, but because we want to deter one and send it to be in a strong posture. And so moving to more distributed networked uh, platforms and systems and so forth. On the economic side, I think it's more economic engagement with the region. Unfortunately, I think we're going backwards in that regard. TPP is not even a gleam in the eye of anybody right now. And, um, you know, maybe we'll get bilateral trade agreement with Japan, but it looks like the terms for the U.S. will be something short of what we would have had under TPP. And, of course, that doesn't include the other countries. I think it includes a strong voice in favor of 
democracy and human rights in the region, and particularly a defense of the the sovereign democratic practices of countries in the region. I mean, we should worry not just about the Chinese interfering in Australian politics as an Australian problem or the Russians interfering in American politics as an American problem, but as an allied problem, as a partner problem, as a democratic problem. And so you kind of put these things together, and at the end of the day, it's going to be the old adage that you're better off with allies and friends than without them, and so we should be in the business of competing for them and having as many as we can. And that was the strategic perspective of the Indo-Pacific from Washington. Next, we'll have the strategic perspective of the Indo-Pacific for Paris. I'm Cleo Pascal. Thanks for listening.